Welcome to Safety Net, a patient safety podcast with news, trends, and ideas from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claims. Careless use of language is not just an annoyance to English teachers and fussy book editors. In medicine, the misuse of language can have serious clinical consequences. It can also leave patients and families with a bad impression or misunderstandings. A 2015 study of 7,000 medical professional liability cases across specialties nationwide found that more than a third involved communication failure. 57% of those malpractice cases featured communication problems among clinicians, and 55% involved provider-to-patient miscommunications. Two physician colleagues recently penned a cautionary perspective commentary in JAMA Internal Medicine titled Watch Your Language, Misusage and Neologisms in Clinical Communication. Dr. Andrew Lux, professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and Dr. Zachary Goldberger, associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, argue that slang and jargon among peers might seem harmless, using the term room air instead of the more relevant term ambient air, for example, or troponemia instead of elevated troponin, but a lack of precision in some instances can mislead a colleague or adversely influence clinical decisions by a team. We invited Dr. Lux and Goldberger to join our podcast and talk about what worries them and what doesn't when it comes to the misuse of words in medicine. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Maybe I'll ask my first question of Dr. Lux. Why is this a serious concern for patient care? The way I look at it is in terms of me being able to communicate with a colleague and get them to understand what we need to do or what the situation is with a patient. A lot of these terms don't have a huge effect. If I use the term room air or ambient air, it's a meaningless distinction in a conversation with a colleague. But when I look at the patients and families, I actually think it's a really big issue. Patients and families have to make decisions about are they going to agree to a procedure Or they need to understand what lays ahead for them. Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? What are the risks that they face? And if they don't understand what what we're talking about in our communications at the bedside or our communications with them, how are they supposed to process this information? How are they supposed to relate to other family members about how their loved one is doing? How are they supposed to make decisions about whether or not to give consent for um, various aspects of the care. So how can they trust us if they're not really understanding what we're saying? That's also the issue there. Uh, you say in the article that jargon and, and this sort of misuse of language can affect the medical team's perspective in ways that become problematic uh, for patient care. Can you say more about that? Yeah, this, so this is Dr. Lux. I, I, I think... There are definitely situations in which you can change the perspective about a patient. When the term vascular path, for example, often applied to patients who have bad peripheral arterial disease. And when you hear that term vascular path, it often implies that they have severe peripheral arterial disease. And then all of a sudden it might convey in the back of someone's mind that this person's long-term prognosis is actually pretty poor. When, in fact, 
people with good medical care can live for pretty long periods of time despite having severe underlying medical problems. And I think the same thing applies when the term COPD is used. Um, a lot of times it implies that someone's at the later stages of their disease prognosis is not very good when in fact, again, people with good medical care, immunizations and other things can actually live quite a long time despite having very severe uh, COPD. So some of this terminology that gets used and applied is descriptors of patients has an ability, I think, to sometimes affect the way we think in the back of our minds, sometimes subconsciously, about how that patient's doing and what their long-term prognosis is. And that might then cloud the way you have discussions about how aggressive to be in their care and things like that. So, Dr. Goldberger, you know, one of the things that we didn't actually get a chance to allude to too much in, the, in um, our piece, but that sort of was resonating in my mind since, is that we also have a lot of semantic bias in the terms of the terms we use. You know, just take, for example, the term antiarrhythmic. You know, that's a drug that we would use to treat patients who have heart rhythm disturbances to try to keep them out of a rhythm such as atrial fibrillation. But, you know, the problem with the words like that, antiarrhythmic, for instance, that it creates an expectation that those drugs actually have the effect of treating a component, when in fact, oftentimes those drugs are pro-arrhythmic. So even the words that are innocuous, words that are the subject of book chapters, for instance, that you'll see in textbooks, often are problematic as well. When you give someone an anti-arrhythmic, there's an expectation that patient's going to be doing better. And again, those terms um, just need to be, I wouldn't say we should avoid them, it's, it's difficult to do, but just have an expectation that patients' families, patients themselves, may actually have sort of a misunderstanding of what you're trying to do with the medical therapy or any kind of intervention. Well, what are some examples of real misuse of language that can actually cause real problems? Well, I think that, you know, when you look at, when you, when you sort of have a just situation of a family listening to a patient presentation at the bedside, you know, when you, when you start talking about things that um, actually really are, you know, just, just jargon, you know, the example of someone flying off the ventilator, or you know, talking about big gun antibiotics, or you know, that that, that actually that, that has a very negative and a pejorative, it even almost invokes the, the idea about violence um, that you're doing to someone under uh, your care. That's really the issue here. I think that the, as far as you know, medical medical ease that you know, I think a lot of patients and families expect to hear that can be forgiven. But I think the real issue is that when you're using jargon. That has it almost sounds unprofessional and it's a misuse of language and it disrespects the language of medicine that we're supposed to learn. That's where the real problems come. This is Dr. Luck. Yeah, I mean, I think often about the example of, you know, say, I, I do a lot of work in the trauma surgical ICU at my institution, and we occasionally have patients who are admitted following gunshot wounds. And you can imagine if you were a patient or a family member listening to a presentation and you're the resident or the fellow or someone else on the team makes a proposal, like, hey, I think we should really pull the trigger here and 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 start some diuretics. Uh, pretty sure that someone who was shot or who had a family member that was shot probably doesn't want to hear that term, pull the trigger, in that moment. It's going to have a negative connotation uh, for them uh, in that situation. And I also think there's a lot of other you know, terms, and we reference this in the piece, Quite often, patients are referred to as COPDers, CHFers, vasculopaths. The worst one I, you know, would hear in residency, but I don't hear much anymore. For fortunately, with patients who, the very complicated patients with chronic kidney disease, were sometimes referred to as renal bombs. I think those are terrible terms, and I think 
what happens is you overlook the fact that your patient is actually a person who has a medical problem. And they should be referred to as such and not just defined in terms of that medical problem. And it is amazing how much, how often when you talk to patients and their families and you actually just inquire a little bit more about them beyond the medical reason why they're in the hospital with you, how much the patients and in particular the families really appreciate it when you take time to learn about them as an individual and look at them more than someone who's having respiratory failure due to their uh, COPD. I remember very vividly when I was, you know, on, on rounds in medical school, and maybe residency or fellowship where you, you know, you'd say, oh, we got the gallbladder over in room four or, or in the ICU, and then oh, the patient who's trying to die, we should probably keep an eye on him tonight. It really was, you know, disheartening to hear that. And I, I suspect that maybe it's, it's not as prevalent as saying those things as much anymore, and I don't, I can't say for sure how it differs from institution to institution, but it's still very prevalent. And I think that the, the, the challenge that we were trying to allude to is that at what point do we actually try to instill in our learners the right way to say things and what not to say? Do you uh, think that this is getting worse? Is it getting better? I, I don't know if there's any way to measure that. Uh, yeah, this is Dr. Lux. I, I don't actually have a good sense of it's getting worse or getting better. I mean, everyone always refers back to the book, The House of God, and the frequent use of similar terminology back then. And I know certainly when I was a resident, um, and even as a fellow, I used quite a bit of this terminology, and I've tried to do a better job uh, over time of eliminating it from my communications and then modeling uh, better communications. Is this Dr. Goldberg? I, I'm not sure it's actually gotten worse or better, but I will say that um, I've, what I've enjoyed about the response to the piece is that people actually are commenting online at some of the things that they actually find to be um, you know, dangerous misuses of words or their own pet peeves. And that, again, these are things that actually I wasn't even aware of until I thought, oh yeah, that actually is problematic. And so I think it's persistent. Um, I try to do the best I can when I'm on service with the team or I have a resident or fellow in clinic just by sort of dissuading. And I think the more you actually are going to make trainees aware of these terms, the more they're going to start to think about it a little more carefully as well. Yeah. yeah, and this is Dr. Lux. I think the challenge is how do you effectively kind of intervene to change this practice? Certainly from a personal standpoint, I think we can model better communications. And I know Zach, like myself, we're very careful about the use of these terms on rounds and try to be very precise in how we're communicating about the patient's clinical situation or what we want to do. The challenge becomes how you correct the members of your team, the students, the residents, the fellows, and then even harder, how do you correct colleagues who may be at or above your uh, level in the faculty uh, hierarchy? And I certainly found on rounds, you cannot interject every single time one of these terms come up. You'll never get through <laughs> rounds. And what you'll probably end up doing is just engendering a lot of frustration because people say, look, this is just lingo. It's part of the profession. Like, it, you know, you understand what I'm talking about. So I try to pick some spots and, you know, one or two terms that I'm going to try to bring up a point about or find some lighthearted moment to interject something about something else and not try to do it every single patient discussion every word that comes out of their mouths because it just it won't uh, engender the change in behavior. That this is want. Dr. Goldberger. You know, especially with this new movement that's now legislation called Open Notes, patients are not only going to be listening to us and as well as their families, but they're actually going to be reading what we write. So if you start using words that don't exist, such as troponinemia or surgerize, anyone with a step in the medical dictionary can take a look at this. They're not going to find these words anywhere. They're going to be even more confused. 
and and this is Dr. Luxon, the thing that I would add too is, you know, some people push back and say, this is really harmless when it's amongst physicians that this terminology is being used. But I think in the end, what we have to remember is that the ultimate object of our work are the patients and their families. And to the extent that we leave them confused or use terminology that is difficult for them to hear, then we're doing them a disservice in our care. And I think that's where we really need to keep our focus. Thank you both. Dr. Andrew Lux is professor of medicine at the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Zachary Goldberger is associate professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and Electrophysiology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Tom Agello. Thank you for listening to SafetyNet, a podcast of news, trends, and ideas from Crico in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu slash podcast and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, and then rate and review the show to help others find it too.